Word. Today's reading comes from First uh, Romans chapter 18. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 18 through verse 25. And it can also be found on the Pew Bible. The page is number 939. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How y'all doing with the cold? That was a little disappointing to me this morning. I had to pull my winter coat back out, and uh, I thought maybe I was just going to, in protest, not wear a winter coat, you know, but... Uh, there were some people agreeing with that over there. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like 24 degrees. And so, I don't know. I just, I buckled under. I buckled under. But those of you that are fighting the good fight, I mean, God bless you. You keep wearing your, your spring jacket in protest all the way to the end. So, all right. So we are uh, here in our Lenten series, Lent to Life. We're exploring this counterintuitive gospel logic that we gain our lives by losing them that we find our lives, uh, we, we, we find our lives by losing them, that we gain our lives uh, by dying. And we've explored repentance to repair, fasting to feasting, humility to unity. And this morning, we explore withhold to behold. Now, maybe if I wasn't trying to be so cute with all my sermon titles, I would have more accurately titled this sermon, Let Go to Behold, but that didn't rhyme and it didn't sound as catchy. But it does probably more accurately capture uh, the heart of what I want to say and I think what's conveyed in this passage uh, this morning. Because in an, an ironic way, we actually lay hold of the world and the good things of this world and what God has made only when we learn to let go of this world and to let go of the good things that God has made and to behold him. So our text this morning is Romans 1, 18 through 25. And we're encountering uh, Paul's doctrine of creation and his typology. 
uh, typology what, you might say, and the word typology may not be familiar to many of you, and that's okay. That's why we come to church on Sunday, so you can learn about typology. So here you are. But the concept of typology is super important for understanding Christianity's doctrine of creation. And by the doctrine of creation, I don't mean the, the intramural debates within Christianity about seven-day earth, seven young earth creationism versus theistic evolution, etc., but I mean Christianity's understanding about the nature and purpose of creation, of the cosmos, of everything that God has made. What is creation for? Why does it exist? What is the world's relationship to God? And how should we as human beings view creation? This is Christianity's doctrine of creation. And then what does all that have to do with Lent? So this fourth Sunday of Lent, we are exploring Paul's typology and Christianity's doctrine of creation. And if that doesn't sound like a good way to spend the fourth Sunday of Lent, I don't know, I don't know what does. So here's what we're going to do this morning. First, I want to give a brief overview of this concept of typology, because Paul is working from a theological framework called typology, and if we don't understand typology, we're not going to have a, as, as easy of a time understanding what he's saying here about the doctrine of creation. And then we're going to divide our passage into two parts. So I want us to see two truths, one from each part of this uh, text here. First, that creation is a sign, is a sign of God's goodness that is meant to lead us to God. And then the second thing I want us to see is that we must learn to transcend creation in order to behold the God to whom it points. So once we've sorted out typology, we've sorted out the doctrine of creation, then we're going to spend some time, extended time as we have in past Sundays, worshiping the Lord, and then we'll come back together uh, for communion. All right, so let's start with typology. <clears throat> now Paul, and the whole, really of the whole New Testament, is working from this theological perspective called typology. And the word type comes from the Greek word tupos, and the word tupas shows up about a dozen times in the New Testament, but the concept of typology or types is woven all throughout the New Testament. And in the ancient world, a tupas, a type, was a visible sign or an image that corresponded to a greater or more significant reality. The sign was called the type, and the greater reality that was signified by the type was called the archetype. So, for instance, here's a good way to understand it. When the emperor in Rome would write a letter to, say, the governor in Judea, he would write the letter, he would seal the letter with wax, and then he would roll his signet ring through the wax, and the image in the signet ring is the type that corresponds to the emperor's ring. So that when the letter shows up in Judea and the governor gets the letter, he looks at the image or the type, the wax type, and he sees that it's coming from this greater, higher reality that he doesn't see, but he knows exists, that somewhere in Rome, the emperor's signet ring. So the sign or the type would make visible in a derivative way something greater that would otherwise remain invisible. All right? Now, this typological framework is how the early church, from a New Testament perspective, read the Old Testament. So from a New Testament perspective, the Old Testament stories and events were, at the time that they occurred, types or signs or shadows 
of the future and yet unseen redemption that would come with Jesus. So think of the Passover lamb. It's perhaps one of the easiest and most obvious examples to point towards. The Passover lamb, the nation of Israel back in the days of Exodus, is held in captivity in, in Egypt by Pharaoh. And so God sends Moses as a deliverer to his people. The problem is that Israel has become complicit in the sins of Pharaoh and Egypt. And so they're just as liable to judgment as the Egyptians are. So God then has the people sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lambs and put it over the doorposts of their house so that when the destroying angel of judgment comes into the land of Egypt, the Israelites are not swept up in God's saving deliverance. So the shed blood of the lamb then delivers the Israelites from the judgment of God and secures their salvation. So then fast forward to the days of the New Testament. Like ancient Israel, the people of the world are held captive by the devil. So God sends Jesus to deliver humanity. The problem is that humanity has become complicit in the sins of the devil. And so God gives us the blood of a lamb to cover over our lives to save us from the saving judgments of God when he comes to destroy the devil. So we are not swept up in the devil's judgment. So the shed blood of the lamb delivers us from the judgment of God and secures our salvation, just like it does with the Exodus and the Passover lamb. And of course, the lamb of God is Jesus. So for the New Testament authors, the Passover lamb of the Exodus was a divinely intended type or a sign of Jesus and his yet unseen at that time coming future sacrifice. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus as our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians. That's why the Apostle John, when he sees Jesus, he calls out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's why John later sees a vision of Jesus in the heavens, and the vision that he has of Jesus is as a lamb that was slain. So the Passover lamb of Exodus in the Old Testament was a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus who is the archetype, all right? You following me all right so far? Picking up our typology? So this is how the early church in the New Testament, particularly the New Testament writers, view almost the entire Old Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the Red Sea crossing was a type of Christian baptism, that the bread from heaven in the wilderness was a type of Jesus, the true bread from heaven, that the water from the rock was a type of the communion wine, that the wilderness wandering of Israel in the desert was a type of of the churches wandering in the world. He says later in uh, Romans 5, here in our book of Romans this morning, that Adam, the first man, was a type or a sign of Jesus, the true and best man. And then in Ephesians 5, he says that human marriage between a man and a woman is a type that refers to Christ and the church. So it's not just Paul either. The author of Hebrews says that Joshua was a type of Jesus, the Sabbath rest was a type of our heavenly rest. The promised land was a type of heaven. Melchizedek, the priest king of Jerusalem, was a type of Jesus, who is the true priest king of Jerusalem. Peter says that Noah's flood was a type of baptism. The judgments of the old covenant were types and shadows of the coming judgment, and on and on it goes. The main point here is that the thought world, in the thought world of the New Testament writers, the Old Testament was full of types and signs that were like breadcrumbs 
or like Easter eggs, as the kids say nowadays, that lead to Jesus and to his coming redemption. And this is why St. Augustine, who was a uh, church father from back in the day, he says the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. And he means that the whole Old Testament is a foreshadow of the New Testament. The New Testament is lying hidden in the, in the Old Testament. And once we come to understand and see the redemption of Jesus in the New Testament clearly and explicitly, we can then look back and we can make sense properly of the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament without the New Testament is just an unfulfilled book. The New Testament fulfills and explains or reveals the true purpose of the Old Testament. And that's the punchline of Christian typology. This is the framework of how the Christians are viewing the Old Testament Jewish heritage that they've come from. The visible signs point beyond themselves to greater and higher realities. All right, so that's typology. So now with that mindset, I want to move into Romans chapter 1 because Paul is operating with this typological framework. And here is the first point to take from Romans chapter 1. Creation is a sign that is meant to lead us to God. Creation is a sign or a type that is meant to lead us to God. In Romans 1, 18 through 25, Paul is taking the New Testament's typological view of the Old Testament, and he's extending it out to the whole of creation. In other words, for Paul, it's not just the Old Testament that is a sign that points typologically to God, but every single thing that God has made, the entire world is a sign that points typologically to God. So look back here in our text, verse 18 through 20. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Well, how are they suppressing the truth? Well, because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how has God shown this truth to them that they are suppressing? Well, verse 20, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul's typological framework is looking to all that has been made in the world, and he's saying everything that's true about God can be seen, if you have the eyes to see it, can be seen here in the world. Paul is laying out his doctrine of sin and God's judgment here at the beginning of Romans. That's not quite our focus this morning, but on his way to making this point about sin and judgment, he's articulating a proper Christian understanding of creation as a type of, or a sign of God. God has revealed himself in creation. Paul is saying that, that all of creation is this type or sign. So God is not visible. The immortal nature is too real. It's too substantive for human eyes to see. But even though we can't see God, we can see his signs, his types. God is the great archetype to which every facet of creation points. So the love of an earthly father is meant to point us to the love of the heavenly father. The sacrificial tenderness of our mothers is meant to point us to and reveal the sacrificial tenderness of Jesus. 
The grandeur of a mountain landscape is meant to point us to the grandeur of God. The strength of a man and the beauty of the woman are meant to point us to the strength and beauty of God in whose image the man and the woman are made. The power of the storm, the joy of friendship, the delight that we take in food, the bravery of the soldier, the prowess of the athlete, the skill of the musician, the reliability and the ordering of mathematics, the creativity of language and art, all of creation, all of creation was made by God as types and signs that reveal who he is, his eternal attributes and his divine nature. The typological nature of the world is why the world is so full of beauty, so full of goodness, because all of creation is reflecting the divine nature of God, who is a God of beauty and goodness and love. Now, the world doesn't always reflect accurately who God is, because sometimes the signs get broken and damaged by sin. But even in a world that is damaged by sin, the goodness of God still shines through. And every bit of the world's goodness is a reminder that God loves us, that he loves us and has given us himself and his goodness, that he wants us to know him, to be a God of goodness and love. And this is such an essential aspect of Christianity's doctrine of creation. But unfortunately, it's not always one that Christians have held to as they should. Throughout history, some types of Christian spirituality have viewed creation as the enemy of faith, a thing to be rejected, to be wary of, to be stiff-armed. And that kind of Christianity, that kind of Christian spirituality is suspicious of the world that God has made doesn't see the world as signs of God's goodness, of God's love to be celebrated and received with gratitude, but as dangerous sirens that threaten to seduce us away from God. And that kind of Christianity takes to heart very seriously the words of St. Augustine who said, it was the lovely things that kept me from God. Beware the lovely things. Beware the lovely things. And maybe you've grown up in that kind of spirituality. Maybe you're still operating in that kind of spirituality. You're wary, cautious about earthly beauty. And you are suspicious of worldly goodness. And you keep your distance from the world. And you counsel your friends to keep your distance from the world. And you parent your children to keep their distance from the world. And your whole stance towards creation is danger, Will Robinson, danger. Or perhaps you're drawn to the good things of the world, but you feel guilty about it. Because you know that mature Christians keep a distance from the world. But try as you might, you can't quite bring yourself to do it. You reject with the right hand and you cling with the left. You find yourself of two minds towards the world. And I've spent some time living with that kind of Christian spirituality, suspicious of the world, but drawn to it at the same time. But listen, here, while there is truth, while there is truth that the good things of the world can lead us astray, 
A suspicious posture towards the world is not the place to start. God never intended us to feel bad about the world. He never intended us to to push away the types and signs of creation because they are types and signs of his presence and his love and his divine nature and his goodness. He desires us to receive them with gratitude. Look back here in our text in verse 21. Paul says that God reveals himself through creation, through all that he has made. He reveals who he is. But then in verse 21, but the world, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The proper response to the good news of who God is as revealed in creation is to honor that God and to give thanks to him for all that he has given. But the whole creation project went wrong when humanity stopped giving thanks for the types. When we give thanks for the types, when we receive them with true gratitude, then they are doing their job. They're connecting us back to God. The gift and the giver are connected in gratitude. But when we cease to give thanks for the types, when we reject them as dangers or as evils, they are no longer leading us to God. And that's why it's gratitude, not rejection, why it's thanksgiving, not stiff-arming, that is the proper response to the goodness of creation, and that keeps them in their place, keeps it in its place. So what is your posture towards God and the world that he has made? I think this is a unique, uniquely important question to ask Christians. Because the world that doesn't have a problem engaging the world. But it's Christians that tend to have a problem engaging the world and viewing the world as a place of goodness. Are you thankful for the types and signs of God's goodness that he has given to you in the world? Or are you more prone to reject the types? Are you more prone to disparage the types? and to push them away as dangers. Listen, God loves us, and he's given us all of creation as types and signs of himself, of his divine nature. What is his divine nature? His divine nature is love, and it's care for what he has made. And he has given us these signs to remind us that he loves us and that he cares for us. And we are to receive them with gratitude as they come into our lives to receive them with thanksgiving that lead us back to the God who gave them. So the first point of our doctrine of creation is this. Creation is a sign that's meant to lead us to God. But as beautiful and good as the signs are, they're only signs. And that leads to the second point. We must learn to transcend the signs in order to behold the archetype, transcend the type to behold the archetype to whom they point. The world is beautiful because God has baked into it types and images of himself. The wax impression of his signet ring is on display everywhere in the world. But the problem begins when we take the type for the archetype. We think, when we think that the wax image is the real thing. Let's look back here in our text. 
picking up in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They put all of their attention, all of their worship on the signs, on the types. They worshiped the created thing rather than the God who had given the created thing. God revealed himself through what he had made, but humanity in the blindness of sin ceased to give thanks for creation and instead chose to worship creation rather than the creator. In other words, we worshiped the wax type rather than the archetype. And this misstep lies at the root, the foundation of sin. That's why Paul here in Romans 1 is starting right at this point. He's going to spend 11 chapters talking about the gospel, but he wants his readers to understand what the problem of sin is. And here is the problem of sin. It's misplaced worship. Sin is when we ascribe ultimate worth and value to the created things rather than seeing them as types that lead to the creator. This misstep is not just morally wrong. It's a great and devastating tragedy. And it happens in every facet of life. So take, for instance, marriage. Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a sign, it's a type, he says in verse 32 of chapter 5, that refers to Christ and the church. The life-giving, one-flesh union of the husband and wife was created from the very beginning, Paul says, as a sign to point us to the life-giving, one-spirit union of Christ and the church. The man and the woman becoming one flesh in the same way that Christ and the church become one spirit. But human marriage is a sign. It is not an end in and of itself. It can't provide ultimate meaning. It's only a type, not the archetype. And so many marriage problems arise when we lose sight of this. And we look to our spouse to be something that they were never meant to be. You must love me or I have no love. You must respect me or I have no respect. And we scratch and claw at each other, demanding that the other person be something that God never intended them to be. But all the scratching and clawing doesn't solve the problem. It only damages the marriage. And we end up despairing or bitter or controlling or resentful. And the reason we are despairing or bitter or controlling or resentful is because we have been placing our ultimate hope in the type, not the archetype. Listen, your husband can't be Jesus. And your wife, I heard, it, I heard a husband say amen to that. <laughs> I think the wives maybe should be saying, I don't know who should be saying, we should all be saying amen to that, right? Your husband can't be Jesus and your wife cannot be the church in glory. And earthly spouses can be breadcrumbs that lead us to the bread of life. But he or she can only be breadcrumbs. 
It is our spiritual union with Christ, not our sexual union with another human being, that carries us and sustains us and gives us life beyond this life. We need our marriage to Christ. This is why we can have what true marriage points to, even as a single. We don't have to be married in this life because marriage in this life is a type that points to what is the true marriage, which is Christ himself. And the same mistake is made in parenting. Our children are just types and shadows of the children of God. We, as the children of God, we know in part what it means to be children of God because God has given children into the world. Some of us have children. All of us have been children. But so often, those of us who are parents don't see our children as just types and shadows of God's children. We see them fundamentally and ultimately as our children, not as reflections of God, but as reflections of ourselves. And we try to make them into the archetype. That's too much pressure to put upon our kids. And they can't measure up to that, to be the archetype. And so we nag and withdraw and control and condemn. For them. We condemn them for not being what they were never ultimately created to be. And we cling to them like they most fundamentally belong to us rather than to God. And all we end up doing is damaging them and making them worse. And perhaps we do the same thing with our work. We place all of our hope and our identity and our job and our performance and vocational success. And then when it doesn't work out, we're devastated. Whether that's because of our own failure or perhaps because of it's an unfair boss or office politics or whatever. But our earthly occupations are just types just shadows of the heavenly vocation to which God has called us. And all of the pressure that you put upon yourself and your job only ends up burning you out, and maybe burning out those who work around you. Or we do this with our friends or our possessions or our hobbies or our art. We take the earthly types and shadows of God and we depend upon them as if they were God. So it turns out, Perhaps Augustine was on to something when he said that the lovely things keep us from God. Because they often do. True and lasting joy can't be found in the things of this world. It can only be found in God. The things of this world are only conduits of joy. They are not the sources of joy. And the great tragedy of life is that we never learn to to loosen our grip on the types in order to access and to ascend beyond the types to the archetype. And you can know if you're making this mistake. You can know if you are trying to turn the type into an archetype. You're starting to feel despair or bitterness or you're lashing out in anger or resentment. The reason that you feel that way about that particular thing in your life because you're trying to have that thing be something ultimate for you. You're trying to make that thing, which is a type, into an archetype. We can't stand to have our archetypes fail. We were not made to have our archetypes fail. Our archetype has to survive. God is our archetype. 
And when we put our hope in a type, it will fail. But we can't have our archetype fail. And so we become bitter and angry and despairing and fighting and violence and wars are started. And the whole world is full of violence because we have made creation into the creator. Maybe if you think of a situation where you are given to despair or bitterness or anger, resentment, say to you that you're in that situation holding on too tight. Where are you holding on too tight? Where are you tempted to worship the type rather than the archetype? Where are you tempted to cling to an earthly good as though it were an ultimate good? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your job, your health, perhaps, your friendships. Let go of the type. And remember that God, not the type, is the source of your joy. God is the source of your safety. He is the source of your hope and of your love and of your value and your worth and your dignity. All that this world does in reminding us of love and hope and value and dignity, those are just shadows, just rumors, just whispers, just breadcrumbs. But the source of all of that comes from God himself. God is the source of all of that. Find it in him. Now note, I didn't say that pain or hurt was an indication that you're holding on too tight. Types can and do hurt us. And when a type fails to lead us to God, when they fail to do their job of pointing us to God, there will be real hurt. And that does create a real and legitimate wound. So the abusive father, the cheating husband, the impossible-to-please mother, the totalitarian government, the unfair boss, the betraying friend, all of these can and do cause real pain. To feel pain doesn't mean that you've made the type the archetype. To feel pain just means that you are a type living in a world of types that can get hurt by types. There's nothing wrong in one sense, nothing morally wrong, nothing spiritually wrong with feeling pain. It's very right in many respects that we feel pain. There's nothing noble or Christian about denying pain or pretending that you've not been hurt by a renegade or broken type. But when the type fails, as all types eventually do, we don't need to despair. We don't need to become bitter or angry or lashing out in rage or resentment. Because here's the thing. When the types fail, the archetype never fails. The first Adam fell, but the second Adam will never fall. And Jesus is the one to whom the types have been pointing all along. And he will be with you and is for you. Even if the types that were meant to point you to him have failed you and hurt you. You don't need to despair. You don't need to become bitter or angry or rageful. God holds you, and he loves you. And his joy and his love is big enough to swallow up 
and cover over and heal all of the grief and the pain and the hurt that the broken types of your life have caused. There will be times in our lives when we need to let go of the types in order to lay hold of the archetype. When we need to fast from food in order to feast on God. When we need to die to our earthly life in order to live to our spiritual lives. When we need to let go of the things of this world so that we can behold the God who made the world. That's what this season of Lent is all about. It's about embracing the pain that comes from the loss of the type, turning it over to God, and letting him be enough. So is God asking you this morning to let go of a type? Something in life that he has given you that should have been something that pointed you to him, but it's not working out. Perhaps you're prioritizing it as an archetype and you need to let it go, or perhaps it's a type that's broken and jagged and it's hurting you and you need to let it go. God is asking you to let go of a type this morning. It's not because he's stern or cruel or a taskmaster. It's because he loves you. Because here's the thing. God wants us to know him. Not just to know him through the veil of his types and signs, but to know him directly and intimately in an unmediated way. He wants us to follow the breadcrumbs back to him so that we can behold him as he is. Theologians throughout church history have talked about beholding God in this great beatific vision. And what they mean is seeing God as he is in himself, not as he is all dressed up in the types and shadows of creation. God longs for us to know him and to behold him with a spiritual sight that sees beyond and through the types and shadows of creation. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that one day we will see God in this way, fully and always. But that even now, bit by bit, God is gently teaching us to see beyond the types, to behold him as he is. I close here with one of my favorite quotes uh, from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, he says this. He says, I believe in God like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. He's such a profound and simple thought. You walk out in the outside on a cloudy day, you look up, you can't see the sun. But you know the sun is there because the sun is revealing everything around you. And you can make sense of the world and see the world because the sun exists. When we come to see God as he is, the world suddenly begins to make sense to us. We finally realize what this world is for. It's not an ultimate reality. It's not the archetype. It is just signs and breadcrumbs that point beyond itself to what is the archetype. And then when we are in a position to see the world as it really is, we can actually enjoy the world. And we can use the world as a gift 
that leads us to God rather than something that takes us away from God. And it is only when we see the world in the light of God that we are in a position to bless the world, to help fix the world. All the jagged signs, all the jagged types, we try to fix them with the energy that comes from thinking that the sign is the archetype, and that just hurts it all the more. But when we let go of the archetype, let go of the type, rather, and we go to the archetype, we behold God, and we see God for who he is, we can see the world for what it is, and now we can come back to the world, and we begin to heal and be agents of God in restoration in the world. To trust him enough to follow the breadcrumbs of this world to the true bread of heaven. So that being filled by what only God can give you, you can return back to your marriages and your parenting and your job and your friendships. And you can return to the world as a blessing to bring life, to, to bring light to this world rather than trying to take it away. God loves us. He wants us to receive the world that he has made with gratitude. He wants us to see him in the world that he has made. And he also wants us to learn how to let go of the world that he has made so that we can behold him who gave it. And in beholding him, find the life that is the light of men, as Jesus said. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us to find our way to you. I pray that you would help us to see the world as it really is, that we would not reject it as a, a danger, nor would we worship it as an end, but that we would receive it with gratitude as a sign that points us to you who are so full of goodness. And finding in you the true goodness, the true bread of life, the true light that is the light of men. Lord, I pray that you would fill us up with that, that we would be able to re-engage the world filled up with you, that we'd be able to enjoy the world as you intended, to see the world as you intended, and to heal the world as you intend for us to help you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.